Mindfulness Mode 494. Designer be designed. Like life will design you whether you like it or not, and you might as well take control of that. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. I'm Bruce Langford, your host, and I just want to ask you, have you ever thought of launching your own podcast? Podbean is a great host. It's a place where your podcast lives. I've been with Podbean for a long time and they've been around for 10 years. The pricing is competitive. It's about $9 a month no matter how much content you upload and they have great stats as well. You can help support the Mindfulness Mode podcast and get a month free of hosting using my affiliate link. Just go here, go to podbean.com slash podbeanmm. And MM, of course, stands for Mindfulness Mode. So let's get on with today's episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's interview. Hey, Mindful Tribe, my guest today has three words of advice. Be caring, authentic, and useful. She's the CEO and founder of Engaged In, and she has devoted her life to helping people crack the code of how, what, and especially why we engage. I have Dr. Kyra Bobinette with me today. Dr. Bobinette, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am definitely in mindfulness mode today, Bruce. Thank you. It is so wonderful to have you on the show. I'm really excited about this. And I just want to start with this, Dr. Bobinette. What does mindfulness mean to you? Yeah. So for me, I can't get away from the neuroscience of it. To me, it means that, you know, there's this mode our brain is in normally at default mode and, you know, we're ruminating, ruminating, ruminating. Mindfulness is the way to like disrupt that otherwise problematic pastime of the brain and to really take executive control as it's called of your experience. Yeah, well, that's really a great way to describe it. I think that's awesome. Now, you've written a new book called Well-Defined Life, and I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and it was just so enjoyable because it's just a very easy read, and yet it's scientifically based. You tell lots of stories in there about your own life. You're very vulnerable, and there are parts that that are funny. And I was just reading a part where you talk about, now, you know, I think this is kind of funny because you reference your bowel movement and how, (laughs) I think, wow, an author who talks about Things that are just so vulnerable and down to earth. And, you know, you talk about how you have this attachment to chai tea and so on and so on. Well, you know what? That's being human. That's really awesome. It's such a great book. Well-defined life. What was your goal when you set out to write this book? Yeah. So I was doing a lot of research on uh, why why we don't do what we know we should or why we don't do what we want to do. And I was super intrigued by why is it that we have this idea of what is best for us, but then we can't get ourselves to do it. And in my own life, I, I find that to be sometimes humorous, as you said, and also sometimes very frustrating and sometimes very shameful. So, you know, for me, the lens through which I see life in general is science, in particular neuroscience. So being able to pull all of sort of my favorite greatest hits of how the brain works and why this thing inside of our skulls gives us so much 
trouble sometimes was the purpose and the driving it. And my, my intent was to really empower people so that they could be the drivers of their own life. And, you know, well-designed life is, is titled that way so that it can be an empowering message of you're in control. You have the keys to the car, like, you know, start driving it. And that's exactly how you started the book off. I I really love that, how you can design your own life. And as a matter of fact, we all do. It's just that some of us don't realize that's what we're doing, right? That's right. Design or be designed. Like life will design you whether you like it or not. And you might as well take control of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it can really help us to be happier and to be more content. And I know that one of the things that some of us struggle with is letting go because as soon as you start talking about mindfulness you start realizing that you know that's a big part of it is letting go but mm-hmm. how do you do that and that's the chapter that you end up with in your yeah. book letting that's go right. and that's so right. how do you let go you know i wish there was a little surrender button somewhere <laughs> on my body you yes. know it's like is this it is that it it is really something to wrangle yourself into that surrender state when especially for people who are professionals who have succeeded as professionals because they have control issues, most of us, you know, so being able to then use a different strategy and letting go is really important as a skill. And there's different mechanisms I find, you know, sometimes being able to really uh, write things down for some people, sometimes making a promise to another human, sometimes, you know, a vow, Sometimes reading something that kind of gets you in that state. Sometimes putting yourself in a position where it's going to happen to you, whether you like it or not, because you pre-committed is another sort of trick. So all kinds of interesting hacks that people use to get to that, that button, right? Yeah. yeah. You started chapter seven off and it's called track your damn self. You stopped, <laughs> you started off with a quote. You began with the quote, until you make the unconscious conscious. It will direct your life and you will call it fate. And that's a Mm -hmm. quote by Young. So let's talk about chapter seven. How do we track ourselves? So tracking is really important. You talked about mindfulness here. Tracking is, is very instrumental in terms of becoming conscious of patterns that are in your way, but you don't know they're in your way. And this is because, you know, earlier in the book, I talk about the bulk of our behavior is driven off of our fast brain or system one thinking or shortcutting is what the brain does. And so if we are going to really take, you know, the best possible potential out of ourselves, we actually have to be very, very specific for a very short amount of time that we know exactly what we're doing, whether it's time tracking, whether it's, you know, open monitoring type meditations, um, those types of things where we become really aware of our patterns. And I've not seen a person who succeeds or progresses without that being a part of their overall regimen. Yeah, Dr. Bobinette, I, I want to ask you, you, your book is 10 Lessons in Brain Science and Design Thinking for a Mindful, Healthy, and Purposeful Life. Which of those 10 lessons was the biggest challenge to write? Ooh, that's easy. Um, easy to answer. Uh, motivation. Motivation. Uh, the motivation science is all over the map. There's so much confusion. There's a lot of just, you know, kind of pop science around motivation. Uh, there's a lot of just uh, dirtiness, the way we use the word, you know, I'm, I'm going to motivate myself, that kind of thing. So the way it operates in the brain, 
was very, very important to capture. And it's very much in line with mindfulness traditions who have really unpacked motivation and what we call salience and what we call uh, drive and, and even some of the behaviorism of dopamine and reward pathways and those kinds of things that are um, right now being mushed together with motivation. So I felt I, I locked myself in a hotel room in Big Sur for five days and I just stayed there and it's a beautiful area of the world. So it was hard not to go enjoy Big Sur, but I just needed to get out of my environment and really make myself do that. And I knew that if I didn't do it, I would feel horrible about wasting the money on the hotel room. So I really set myself up. I behavior designed myself to make sure that I wrote that chapter. And it was, it was a beautiful uh, chapter. I use it every day in terms of understanding uh, the fluctuations of how motivation works in your brain. Right. Chapter six is designed for lasting change. How do we make change last in our lives? Yeah. So a lot of us don't realize that the, the way that we um, need to change is by constant, persistent reinforcement of habit formation. And habit formation in the brain um, really happens only one way, which is neuroplasticity kicks in at certain intervals of practice. So let's say you have a sitting practice where you meditate every day for 10 minutes a day, which is what I typically do. And you do that for 21 days, which is what people think is the, the way to have lasting change. But you know, most people don't realize that 21 days actually came from a surgeon who was a plastic surgeon in the 60s, who said that it took 21 days for his patients who got a nose job to accept their new nose. And so there's these kind of confusions out there in terms of what lasts and how to get ourselves to last. And really all it is, is that once we trigger our brain to get a behavior to happen over and over again, it starts to, because it's lazy, our brains are lazy. It tries to save energy. It will automate that at a predictable schedule. So around eight to 10 weeks, it automates it at about six months. It automates it further. So if you're committed to meditation practice, it actually gets easier and easier and easier to do as a habit and more and more the default of your behavior. Uh, Dr. Bobbin, a lot of authors tell me that when they write their book, something is revealed about their past or their childhood or they have a revelation. Did you have any revelations when you wrote this book? The scariest thing for me to write was chapter nine. And the reason why I put it as chapter nine was I was like, well, if somebody's going to take the time to read all the stories that I'm sharing and understand the science and they're, they're motivated to get all the way to chapter nine, then I owe them my most vulnerable story. And as you know, it's the story of when I became suicidal at a time when I, I was so prideful, I thought I would never have that kind of problem. You know, and so it was very humbling for me to experience that. And it was really scary writing that chapter. And I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it, you know, and, and I'm not going to care about what it does to my career, my profession, because my objective is to really share at a level that is honest with uh, people who are listening to this so that they can feel like, oh, I'm not alone. Like we're all in this together. We're all these little wonky humans. And we're all trying to make it work. 
Well, I think you're doing a great service to the world by writing this book, because even though the book looks relatively thick, once you open it and you start reading, you realize what a comfortable, easy read it is and how much fun it is to read it because you're sharing stories and you're making it so easy to understand mindfulness and understand how you can make shifts in your own life that will make a difference for you. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful book. And uh, I know that we can go to your website at drkyrabobinette.com. And that's K-Y-R-A-B-O-B-I-N-E-T. That's correct. Dr. Kyra So get yourself over there, Mindful Tribe, and check out everything on that site. So let's talk a little bit more about the work that you do. I know that you've started started a business quite some time ago, and it was called Engaged In. Tell us mm-hmm. about Engaged In. Yeah. So Engaged In is a, in, in, in flux, we are changing and updating. Um, we are becoming a SaaS company for behavior change. So we created a app with Walmart a couple of years ago, uh, Fresh Try, and we found that it caused people to lose weight and it causes behavior change. So that habit formation, that lasting change, uh, we basically built it to build that mindset within somebody so that they can actually become, you know, really good at changing their in the, right now and in in eating habits is the main focus for it. So we are a SaaS company now, and that's just new information because we're just becoming and transforming that like a butterfly. We're kind of coming out of our cocoon in that way. Can you tell us a little bit more about Fresh Try? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, I could geek out on this all day. So basically chapter one of my book, I talk about the people who think like designers. And that correlates to research that we did in Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, with people who worked at Walmart and who shopped at Walmart, who really lost weight uh, against all odds and kept it off for years and years and years. So we'll call those the permanent changers, right? Mm -hmm. And those people, and then we studied people all over the United States who also did the same thing. And what we found was in thousands of people who had done this against time constraints in the midst of a lot of stress, no money, like all single parents, um, all of two jobs, all those sort of pressures of life. These people had one thing in common, which is that they had the same iterative mindset. They thought like designers for them, anything new was an experiment. And if that experiment did or didn't work, they would just iterate, which means that they would tweak what they were doing when they reached either an obstacle or they nailed it and they wanted to go to the next level. So that mindset is what Fresh Try embodies. It follows your brain's natural patterns of how it forms habits and also how to become one of the people who thinks like that. And we really want to free people from, you know, pretty much a predatory industry, the diet industry and 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 the food industry, you know, um, it's kind of a dark area. So um, I'm hoping that more and more people see it like this and that they become empowered, they become in charge. And that's the whole purpose behind it. Yeah, I was fascinated to read that you use that word iterate quite yeah. a bit. It's not a word that is a commonly used word in most people's vocabulary. <laughs> and it yet. should be. Yeah, uh, yeah, so I, let's talk a bit. Yeah, let's talk yeah. a bit more about iterate and what it means and that's why right. it should be a more commonly used term and a more commonly used technique. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, one of the big ahas in writing the book was the Habenula. And that's, that's chapter one, which is an area that is most recently discovered in the thalamus of the brain. And this area is unique in that it serves as two things. One is it serves as a failure detector. So in an fMRI machine, if you think you failed, it will light up. And then the second function that it does is that if you think you failed, it's responsible for killing your motivation to try again. So, and the real snag of that is that you don't know what even happened to you. So here you have a person who, you know, I used to have patients all the time who'd be like, oh, doc, I was great. I did this. I was working out seven days a week. I was doing this. I had my life together. And then we kind of go, and then what happened? And they would just blank stare like, I don't know. Almost like they were abducted by aliens and then put back on the earth. You know, like we don't know. We don't know that it happened to us. All we know is that on the surface, you stop doing the thing that was so good for you. You stop meditating. You stop um, being mindful. You stop tracking. You stop all these good behaviors, right? And you had a habenula event. Some part of you believed at some point or perceived failure. So, you know, it's really good in um, mindfulness communities. There's an idea of beginner's mind. You know, I'm just beginning and I'm taking everything a fresh look at things. And I think that's one of the sort of, you know, mental technologies that mindfulness offers to keep us going when, and keep us avoiding this, this, you know, kind of subconscious quitting disease that is happening. So iteration and that, that mindset of iteration is kind of in that same family, which is I I'm going to iterate. If I reach anything or if I fall off the wagon, I'm just going to iterate my way back. Iterators never fail. Oh, that's that's just such a great concept for all of us to use. Yeah, because we have these these voices in our head that are persistent sometimes telling us that we're not going to win. <laughs> and we all have it. I have it. You have it. We all have it. We all have despair or negative self-talk that just kind of runs on autopilot. It's the worst thing. <laughs> it is. It's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, it, is. it is. But knowing that we all have it is a help, isn't it? Seriously, seriously. And, yeah. and that's why, you know, this conversation and conversations like this, like, you know, it's so important that we realize how normal we are, how normal that experience is so that we can kind of get over it and say, all right, I'm just going to iterate my way out of this. <laughs> Kyra, I want to ask you about the topic of bullying. I've worked in that field for a long time. And I wonder if you have a story you can share with us about bullying where mindfulness maybe would have made a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in medical school, I started volunteering in juvenile hall. And many times there was moments where the young people, because these were young people detained in units and they were unhappy and they were being, you know, not mistreated, but not treated well. And so lots of stress, lots of anger, you know, they were violent criminals in the labeling sense and they would break out in these brawls and I would be teaching about health education. And then all of a sudden this brawl would kind of, you know, head out. And of course, as you can imagine in that kind of environment, there's a lot of pecking order stuff going on and bullying stuff going on. So what I learned is that as I started meditating and I was, this was 20 years ago and I was meditating, I was more perceptive of the dynamics. So I could see almost through peripheral vision, I wouldn't get so tunneled in what I was trying to teach. And instead I could take in more information and then I became more of a protector. So then flash forward, 
I left that career and I was working for a large company. I had a conference call where I had to pull over in San Francisco behind, I didn't know it was behind this school. So I'm on this conference call. I'm very focused on this whole business deal that I'm talking about. And all of a sudden I see a young person go back behind me and then another young person come back. But it's, it's, like, it's like the intention of it was very palpable. Mm-hmm. And my mindfulness alarms were going off. And then I realized over my left shoulder that there was a group of young people collecting and that's not a good sign after school. And they had two girls that were going to be in a fight. One girl was being bullied by the other couple girls. And all of a sudden, like I'm I'm ending this call and all of a sudden I, I hear this big ruckus over my left shoulder and this one girl started getting attacked by the other girl, the bigger girl. So I was in heels. I was in a skirt. I was in a business suit. All I had was my phone, my keys, and a pencil in my immediate environment. I rushed out of that that car. I stomped across the pavement all the way down to where this was happening. And I just started like screaming at them, like, stop it, stop it, you know? And I would not have been able to do that. And they broke, it broke it up, protected the girl. And I feel like bullying in some regards happens because the adults in the room are not aware. They're not mindful of the dynamics that are brewing and they, and they can step in to protect if they are clear in themselves and they're even mindful of their own fear, you know, and that way they know to get involved or how to get involved instead of just being surprised, first of all, you know, and, and the youth have the upper hand in that case. And then number two, not knowing what to do because you're afraid or you're, you're not connected with your emotions and you kind of freeze. So I think in those ways, if every adult, teacher, principal, parent was not frozen, you know, and was aware of the dynamics, they could catch it early and they also could be really effective interlo- you know, interveners and, and really protect the kids. Wow. You're a great storyteller as I found out from the book as well, but what a terrific story. And it's so true that as adults, it's our responsibility to step in, to grab that courage and just do something. And yeah, yeah, so that's why I love your story. Kyra, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has positively influenced mindfulness in your life? My mindfulness teacher, Sylvia Gretchen, she is in personal retreat. She no longer teaches publicly, but that woman blew my mind, blew my mind. She showed me how noisy it is in there. She showed me different techniques and ways to really take uh, a, a different point of view and really affect my own mental and emotional stability. I will forever be grateful to her. Wow. So Kara, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? So I still have some negative emotions on a daily basis. What I think the value of mindfulness is, is that I know when I'm having those, I can see the the tide rise of my anxiety or my depressive thoughts or those kinds of things. And then I can do something to either slow down Mm -hmm. or adjust my schedule or go outside or take a deep breath or even say to somebody, I'm feeling this way. So sometimes that just allows the electricity to kind of relieve the system, which is really nice to 
reset and to be aware of that. So tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Yeah. Breathing is so important, isn't it? I yes. mean, when I, when I first start, learned mindfulness, I, I learned that we breathe so shallowly as modern people. And part of that's because our brains are getting triggered by so many stimuli on a moment to moment basis that we are, our normal cycles of breathing are disrupted. So it's actually just returning to what's natural, what's, what's nature for us, what's biological for us to stop and take a deep breath. And what's so funny is that if you tell people or you start talking about breathing, I guarantee you every person who is with us right now listening is deep breathing because it's just a good reminder. You know, it's like, it's like talking about your posture. Everybody kind of sits up and is yeah. like, oh, okay. You know, it's just natural for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah. Different times when I have a, a big audience out there, as soon as you say that word about posture, you just notice a, a yeah. distinct <laughs> change in the way the audience is sitting. Everybody grows three inches. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, your book, Well-Defined Life, like I said, is fantastic. If there was any other book related to mindfulness that you could recommend, what would that be? Anything by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. Those books are so simple. And it's kind of like that Mark Twain saying, like, you know, the simplicity comes with mastery. And so if anybody wants just like a real basic entry to that, I think that his is very approachable. Are there any apps which you would recommend related to mindfulness that could help some of our listeners? You know, it's like recommending a shirt to somebody. I mean, everybody has their own taste in things. Yes. My thing is minimalism. So I use an app called Samsara. It doesn't have a big marketing budget. It's not out there in the world doing things. Not that those are bad. They're doing their own value in the world. Um, But it's just a timer and it has beautiful bells that you can set. You know, it has all the basics and I love it. It's very functional. Samsara. And could you spell it for us? S-A-M-S-A-R-A. S-A-M-S-A-R-A, samsara. Even saying the word is relaxing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it it means all the junk of life in Sanskrit. I think it means just all the sort of like the of life, you know? So it's kind of maybe a paradoxical name. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on the show and I think it's wonderful what you're doing. And if you were to write a second book, Kyra, what would be the, the message that you would want to get out there as a sort of a a takeoff point from your first book? That's a great question. So I don't know whether it's related to my first book or not. I go by intuition often, but I am halfway through a book on questing. Uh-huh. So I have been, my practice for the last 24 years has to been go out in the nature and to the wilderness and quest for a week fast from food and just pray and meditate and, you know, do all those things, yoga and by myself. And so that is the premise for what I think we've lost as an art, as humans, is questing. Have you done retreats yourself? I have. I've done one month retreats for meditation, but I've also done these nature retreats, these wilderness retreats solo for the last 24 years. And how often do you do retreats? Like every year or more often? I do it. Yeah, I do it every year over a long weekend in October. And so I go out for five days. I bring water or ways to clean my water and a sleeping bag and very minimal everything. And then a journal and usually a a book of some kind that helps me to really amplify my mindfulness. Do you have a specific approach when you journal or do you just kind of spill whatever's on your mind? 
I do. I have two modes. I'll say that the first mode is me really just catharsis, you know, like just writing down what I think or what I feel. And then I have a prompt that I use to kind of go to another meta level, which is my beloved child. And then that seems to be the voice of something talking to me that is wiser than me. So I don't know whether that's me in another realm or whatever I'm channeling, whatever the mystical, whatever thing you might say, but that really helps me to tap into truth and to extract out of ego very quickly. Kyra, it has been fantastic having this chance to talk to you about your wonderful book. Like I said, I truly enjoyed it. It's just so, so enlightening, well-designed life, so much information, so much thoughtfulness that you put into it, so much wisdom. Thank you for writing this book and thank you for being on Mindfulness Mode. I am so happy to have been here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And Mindful Tribe, don't forget, go to drkyrabobinette.com. And you can learn more about Dr. Bobinette and get that book, Well-Designed Life. So all the best to you, Kyra. Thank you, YouTubers. Yeah, bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember, if you're thinking of launching your own podcast, you can get a free month at Podbean with its awesome pricing and fantastic stats. And you can just do that by going to podbean.com slash podbean MM, standing for mindfulness mode. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.